The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. And Jeff's playing tambourine, guitar and vocals. Pretty impressive. That's the kind of caliber of musician we have. Play three instruments at once. It's awesome. Um, before we come around the word, just wanted to, uh, I guess, make mention of the Grilled Fundraiser. I know we've done this before, and some people kind of wondered about, you know, how effective it is. Look, the reason, one of the main reasons we're doing it is for promotion. You know, one of the best things about this is there's a jar with our name on it that says Parameter Community Care. And if people kind of go, oh, Parameter Community Care, I wonder what this is about, and look us up, that's great. The money we get from it is not what we know what we're doing it for. Now, if you want to give to Parramatta Community Care, you don't have to go and eat unhealthy burgers, all right? There's an envelope in your seat pocket. You can do that at any time. You can give to Parramatta Community Care. It is tax deductible. So if you'd rather give $10 to the church directly rather than go and give it to Grilled and get a dollar from them, then please do it that way. We would much rather you just give to Parramatta Community Care than go to Grill just to eat the burgers. But if you happen to be at Westfield and you're hungry and you want to eat a burger, then go and eat a burger and put your tokens in the, in the Parramatta Community Jar. Either way. But we would love for you to just support Parramatta Community Care and the great work that they do in our community. So I just want to clarify that. If you're visiting with us, we want to extend a very special welcome. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you're here. We're in our third week of this great series we've been exploring, Big Faith in a Big God. And we're journeying through Hebrews 11, um, which is an awesome, awesome passage. And so I'm really excited to kind of take us into uh, the next part of our text. Um, and it fits into our theme this year. So if you're visiting, just giving you a bit of a, uh, a context, our theme this year as a church um, is growth, growing and maturing in God. And, and one of the things that we've really wanted to focus on is growing in our vision of God because we're convinced if we see a big God, a bigger God, then we're more likely to trust Him more and, and, and step out in faith and, and do um, exploits for God because we're confident in His bigness. And so this series fits into that thing because we want to grow in our vision of God. We want to grow in our faith and trust in this God. And so that's why we're exploring this chapter. And so uh, this morning we're coming to explore the story of Moses and some of the great things there. But before we jump into the text, I want to show you a video clip from one of my favorite movies and something I love doing. Um, I'm the movie guy, so have a look at the screens.
Faith, leap of faith. A lot of times we can kind of conceptualize faith like that. It's just this leap into the unknown. And I love what, you know, Sean Connery's character says, you must believe, but believe in what? Um, and sometimes you know, we kind of just think faith is just believing in something and kind of jumping off. But when we come to Hebrews 11, we kind of see a much deeper and a much broader understanding of faith. A couple of weeks ago, Rohan kicked off the series by defining faith this way. He said it's this idea of confident obedience to God's Word, if you can put that up. Confident obedience to God's Word Regardless of the consequences, regardless of uh, the circumstances, it's this unwavering conviction that God will be true to His Word, that God will be faithful to His promises. That's what we believe in. That's what you step out in. It's not in a, you know, something good happening or something positive happening. It's just being sure that God will be true to His Word. And that's what we've seen in the characters that we've looked at so far. That's what we're going to see as we kind of look at Moses because now the writer makes this explicit and clear to us. And so if you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Hebrews 11, and we're going to explore this theme, what does it mean to live this life of faith? This life of faith. Hebrews 11, and we're going to pick up Uh, From verse 23, it says this, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw that he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and minister to us, uh, to bring alive this passage in our hearts, that we might grow in our vision of who you are and grow in our trust and obedience and faith in you, we pray in Jesus' name. So I want to kind of highlight three things about this life of faith. And in some ways, they're kind of countercultural for, I guess, you know, in our general Pentecostal kind of mindset. But here we go. The first thing is that the life of faith will require radical choices, will lead you to make radical choices. And you, we see, we've already seen that in the life of Noah, choosing to build an ark. We've seen that in Abraham, where he, choose, he chose to leave his family and his land of origin and, and chose to even sacrifice his son. Uh, we've seen these radical choices. And when we come to Moses, the writer makes this explicit that Moses and his parents are intentionally making these radical choices. The, the parents were choosing to trust God with the safety of their child rather than give in to Pharaoh's command that no male child was allowed to live. I mean, that's, that's a huge thing to go up against the most powerful man in the world at the time. And yet they were willing to make that choice because they believed in God's sovereign protection even more. 
And then we see Moses, and we, we're told in the text the number of choices he's making. He doesn't want to be identified with, with Pharaoh's family. I mean, that's huge. The guy was in this, you know, in the lap of luxury, in this powerful position, and he denies that identification to identify with the slaves, with the lowest, with the, the marginalized and the oppressed. It says that he, he, he renounced or he rejected the pleasures of Egypt, the treasures of Egypt, so that he can identify and be mistreated and be um, harassed. He's choosing pain and suffering rather than luxury and treasures. Radical choices. We're seeing that uh, they're choosing to trust this blood that's been placed on their doorframe, the people and Moses, uh, to protect them from the destroyer of your firstborn. I mean, put yourself in that situation. You're trusting the safety of your firstborn child to the Word of God when He says, I will protect you if you cover your doorframe with the blood of the Lamb. And then we get to the final example of radical choices where they step into a sea that's parted. I mean, like there's fish wriggling on the ground there, and they are, and the army of Egypt is pursuing them, and they're choosing to move ahead rather than just go, you know what, we surrender. We, we give up. We will come back. But they make this radical choice. And we see throughout the Bible that God's people, in living a life of faith, are often required to make radical choices. They're, they're led to that point of having to make really difficult but radical decisions that to other people seem crazy, seem ridiculous, seem uh, absurd that you would make that choice. And many of us are sitting here and we've made those choices and our family wonder about our craziness. That You give 10% of your income to the church? What? That's just insane. I know people who go to their tax accountant and have heard their tax accountant say, you're insane giving that much money away to the church. Or it might be that you're going to sell your house and go overseas to be a missionary. You, I mean, there's people in our church who've done that and people have said to them, you're crazy. Uh, there's many examples of radical choices of obedience where people trust God. And when we come to the New Testament, we see the disciples are told, leave everything, follow me. And they do. They leave their boats, James and John. They leave their family and they follow Jesus. We come to the Acts of the Apostles and we see Paul who was a guy who had it all together. He was in, in power and influence and he was the who's who of Israelite society. And, and when confronted by Jesus, he abandons it all and lives a life that is very, very different. Radical obedience. The second thing about the life of faith is that I wanted to say always, but I kind of softened it a little bit, often leads to negative outcomes. Often, and I think if we're honest, we want to say, yeah, always. But when we look at Hebrews 11, we see that here's Moses, and he's, he's choosing for God. He's choosing to live a life of faith. He's choosing to trust God, and all hell breaks loose. Everything goes wrong. Now, that is something that, particularly in our Pentecostal context, we really struggle with. Because we, we, we love the triumphalism. We like the, if you believe and if you trust God and if you have faith in God, everything will work out. Things will work out. Well, not when you read the Bible. And certainly not when you look at, I mean, we're told right here, Moses, because of his choices, he was mistreated, verse 25. He was disgraced, verse 26. And when you read his account in Exodus, because of his choices, the guy is running for his life. 
He has to leave everything. He's a refugee. He's disenfranchised. He's, he's sent out of his home and away from his family and away from his people, people. And he's living as a refugee in Midian for 40 years out in the wilderness. Negative outcomes. And, and, you know, sometimes we think, oh, but if we're in the will of God and if we're acting in faith, then, then things will work out. Well, let me take you to a couple of New Testament examples. When it comes to Jesus and boats, beware. <laughs> Matthew 8, one story. Jesus tells his disciples, go to the other side. Now you think, okay, that's a clear word from God. All right, we'll get into it. But what's more, Jesus actually gets into the boat with them. You, you, you can't be any more in the will of God than having Jesus tell you to go and getting in the boat with you. And what happens? The first thing that happens is a massive storm breaks out. It's like the disciples would have been going, hang on a second, we're in the will of God. And then a few chapters later in Matthew 14, the same thing happens again. Now, if I was the disciples, I'd go, whoa, I remember the last time you told me to get into a boat and go to the other side. That didn't work out so well. And they do it again. This time Jesus is not with them. He comes to them walking on the water because the wind and the waves were against them. It's like every time Jesus says, go to the other side and get in a boat, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. It's like, I don't know why we sometimes think that living a life of faith means that things will just work out. It might often lead to negative outcomes. Even when you're being obedient and you're being faithful and you're trusting God and you're stepping out in faith and all of that stuff. But the third thing I want to say, say to you about the life of faith, and I think this is why these men and women consistently do this, is that they encounter God in ways that they would never encounter God had they not. There's something about the way God works in that space when everything's gone wrong. I mean, I just want to take you back to the story of Moses in Exodus 5 and 6. You know, so we've had this first instance, but then Moses runs off. He has the burning bush of here, right? You know that story, Exodus 3. And God says to him, go back. I'm going to rescue my people through you. And so he goes back. And again, it goes from bad to worse. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, I've got a word from God. I know God's will. He's told me to rescue these people. And what does Pharaoh say? He doesn't say, I submit. Yes, I'm going to. No, he says, I don't care about your God. I'm going to make life worse for you. And so the people of Israel, they're just going, whoa, 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 what just happened? Things now we have to make bricks with no straw. It's just gotten worse. And now, the, not only has uh, Pharaoh not let them go and made life worse, and the people are turning against Moses. I'm sure if I was in Moses' situation, I'd be going, hang on, God, you sent me here. You, you called me. You told me to go here and do this. And now the very people you want me to lead out of slavery don't even want to go. They're turning their backs on me. They want to stone me. And it says in, in chapter 6 that Moses' self-doubt and all of that stuff that he feared most came crashing in on him and saying, God, I can't do this. And yet... We see in the midst of all of that, God is at work in ways that they would never have experienced any other way. Unless Moses' parents put him in a basket, they wouldn't have seen God intervene. I mean, think about it. They're just trying to save his life, but instead, he ends up in the palace. I'm sure when Moses' parents put him in the basket, they didn't think, oh, he's going to go into Pharaoh's court and become like, you know, Pharaoh's grandson. How awesome is that? He's going to have the best education. He's going to have a lap of luxury. That's cool. Let's trust God. 
They're going, man, I hope he survives. God, we're entrusting him to your hands. We don't know if he's going to live or die. And yet God moves in an amazing way. And if, if Moses hadn't experienced all the mistreatment, and all the rejection and run for his life and spent 40 years in the desert, he would not have seen a burning bush. Something that it was just such a remarkable experience that changed his life forever. It's in the desert, isolated, alone, rejected, lost, forgotten. In that space, he encounters God. And we see that. Even with the children of Israel, they're, they're suffering, they're, 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 their punishment has been increased. And over and over again in the early chapters of Exodus, we keep being told that their cries of, of complaining and, and, their, and their grief and their pain was coming up to God over and over again. Life was terrible for them. And yet in the midst of that is when they see God move in the ten plagues. God do these amazing things of judgment against Egypt and yet preserving and protecting His people ultimately with the, with the Passover and then through the Exodus where they, they see God part this sea so that they can walk through it. He came out of pain and suffering and negative outcomes and still living a life of faith, of trusting and obeying God, even in the midst of everything going wrong. God meets them in a, in a very different, powerful way. They encounter and experience God doing amazing things. And so I think that's why these men and women continue to obey and trust God, because they had this assurance that whether it's in my lifetime or the next, God will win. God will win. And so they keep going. So I want to, I guess, now draw us to think about some applications, how we're supposed to live, uh, what will help us to live this kind of life of faith. The first thing, I think, and this comes out in the passage over and over again, is that it's going to take a vision of something better. That's, that's what you need to live a life of faith. I mean, you look in the text, we're told in verse 23 that Moses' parents hid him because they saw he was no ordinary child. They saw something in Moses that was worth the risk, that was worth the pain, that was worth going against the king because they had a vision of something more, something better. And then again, we're told in verse 26, uh, he regarded, Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. He was looking ahead. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Why? He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. You see, Moses' parents saw something special in, in, in Moses, and they were willing to take the risk. Moses saw a greater reward than all the treasures of Egypt. Moses saw a greater king, the invisible one, the, the supreme one that was worth defying this king. But it was this vision of something more that, that kept them going, not the present circumstances. And, you know, we see even in the, in the, in the story uh, of the disciples in the boat, they encountered Jesus in those times in the storm. Oh, Jesus gets up, calms the storm, and they're amazed. They're like, whoa, who is this guy? And then when, in the second story, when Jesus comes walking to them on the water, they see Jesus. And the story of Peter getting out of the boat, as long as he was fixed on Jesus, it was good. But then he changed his focus. 
to the circumstances, and that's when he started to sink. It takes a vision to compel you forward, a captivating vision. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews wants them to get. And that's why when he gets to the conclusion of his argument in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, which is really the conclusion of chapter 11, he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance. There's that word again, the race marked out for us. Here's the key phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the compelling vision. That is the greater vision. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3 again, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He's writing to a whole bunch of Christians who are being persecuted, who are experiencing rejection and mistreatment and the confiscation of their property and uh, all kinds of stuff. And he's saying, you need to fill your vision with something greater because that's what will drive you. You know, if you go to a driving course or a motorcycle course and you're learning how to drive, you know, one of the things they teach you, you will always steer where you focus, where you look. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. To, to get you through this life and to live a life of faith, you need to have a, a vision of something greater. And I want to suggest to you that that vision can only be Jesus. Because the writer of the Hebrews says that it's the author and the perfecter. He's the one that endured so much for us. When we get a vision of Him, then we can live this life of faith. The second thing I want to say to you, and I'm not you know, here to make you feel better. I'm here to make you feel worse. That this life of faith... It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take sacrifice. And we see this in the life of Moses. We, we see that many of the heroes of the faith, they experience ridicule, ridicule, rejection, persecution, beating. And we see that in the life of Paul in prison. Like he lists all the stuff that had happened to him after he started following Jesus. So if you're here and you're considering following Jesus, I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is it's the best decision you'll ever make. But the bad news is be prepared for the sacrifices that it will cost you to follow Jesus. And it's not just me saying that. Jesus said that. He said, look, if, if you're not ready to, to take up your cross and to die to yourself, you're, you're not ready to follow me. If you're not prepared to, to kind of have this total commitment and devotion to me that will seem like you hate your parents and your family, then you're not ready. And He may ask you to leave everything to follow Him. See, the thing is, Jesus asks us to give everything. Every other sacrifice, in light of that, should be nothing if you've given everything already. This life of faith, from what I read in Hebrews 11, from what I see in Moses' story, what I see in the disciples' It will cost you, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And that, that's what Moses tells us. He was looking ahead to his reward. The, he, 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 there's a greater value than the treasures of Egypt. He recognized that no matter how good this life is, no matter how comfortable and luxurious and convenient and powerful and successful it be, it does not compare to the life that God has for me, which is why the Bible, in, in Jesus' parables, he talked about himself as being the pearl of great price. And he talked about himself being this treasure that this man discovers. And just like 
like Jesus, the writer tells us in chapter 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus was able to lay down his life because there was a greater joy ahead that compelled him forward. Just like that, in the parable of the the, the farmer, it says that in his joy, he went away and sold everything he had just so he can get Jesus. It It will cost you everything. There'll be sacrifice, but it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. It will be the, the greatest joy that you'll never know. You'll know peace beyond understanding. You'll know a sense of being right with God and right with yourself and right with your neighbor as you live this life of faith. But it will cost you. It will cost you time. It will cost you your reputation. It will cost you money. It will cost you convenience. It will, might cost you physical harm. It might cost you your very life. And throughout church history, we've seen men and women who are willing to embrace and follow Christ, even if it costs them everything. There's a story told about a guy called Telemachus in the 4th century. And he was a desert monk. And he comes to Rome one day on holidays. And by this time, the Romans weren't throwing the Christians to, in, in, the, in the gladiator sports to be eaten by the lions. They'd stopped that, but they were still having the gladiator battles. Anyway, the story goes that Telemachus was so troubled by this that he he jumps out of the crowd and he gets in there and tries to stop these two gladiators who were fighting to the death. And he shouts out and he calls for the violence to stop. And the crowd did not appreciate that. And the story goes that they stoned him to death. But the emperor, when the emperor heard about his courage and his passion, he decided from that day on those games would be banned. You see, following Christ might cost you everything, but it's worth it because there is a greater reward that you're living for. And unless that vision captivates you and grips your heart that is Jesus and the life that He wants for you, that He's called you to live, you'll never make those sacrifices. But when you do, when you, when you discover that Jesus is worth it all, then you can live this life of faith. Last one. This life of faith will take endurance. And we've seen that in our text already. We're we're told that Moses persevered in verse 27. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. It's going to take perseverance. Yeah, for sure, we can see in the Bible that God can and He does provide ways of escape. He does rescue His people. He does move in supernatural ways. He does amazing and awesome things. Absolutely. Not just in biblical times, in church history, even in your life, there are stories, I'm sure, that abound. In my life, there are testimonies. And we ended last year with people sharing testimonies of how God supernaturally intervened in their life. But I'm sure each one of us will also have stories of times when we were really believing and praying and God didn't. He answered, but not in the way that we wanted. That's the life of faith, right there. See, sometimes God provides a way of escape, but at other times, the life of faith involves enduring. We see this in the book of Acts. In a matter of chapters, James is martyred and Peter is rescued. That's just God's sovereign wisdom, endurance. Without it, 
you won't finish the race. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews gets to in chapter 12. He says, persevere, endure. If you keep looking to Jesus, who endured so much from sinners, then you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, he wants these people who are going through so much to know that the life of faith doesn't mean you'll always get what you want and you always have a way of escape and God just turns up at the last minute and saves the day, like Indiana Jones often does. Sometimes, oftentimes, he doesn't. See, faith doesn't mean living on the top of the mountain. Sometimes God takes you there and it's awesome and it's amazing. And we're thankful for his intervention and, 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 and his miraculous grace and provision. But many times, the life of faith means walking with God in the valleys. With the uncertainties, with the unknowns, with the questions. That's the life of faith that Hebrews calls us to. A life of endurance, a life of continuing to obey God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. See, and, and I love this bit. How did these Christians, how does the writer encourage these Christians to do this? Like what assurance does he give them? Well, the assurance he gives them is that God wins in the end. That there is an ultimate rescue and deliverance. That even if the waters of the Red Sea came over the people of Israel and they were all destroyed, even if the Egyptian army caught up to them and massacred them all, even if it's okay. Because that's not the end of the story. Because God ultimately wins. That there is an ultimate rescue that is assured for all of us based on a finished work in history at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 12, the, he brings this out by saying, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what he wants them to see, that Jesus has conquered, Jesus has triumphed. Our greatest enemy, death, has been defeated. Sin has been atoned for, and now Jesus is done, so he's sitting down. That's our assurance, that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what consequences, no matter what circumstances we go through, we have this assurance that Jesus has won, and because he's won, I will win. Because he's seated, I will be seated. That is my assurance that is my conviction that is my certainty and so i believe and so i walk in faith so i endure because it's not about what happens here it's about the hope i have and that is what all of these heroes in hebrews 11 were told over and over again they're looking ahead they're looking to this certainty this city that god is preparing this home that god is going to bring them to so it doesn't matter whether they're rejected and persecuted and isolated and beaten up and mistreated and disgraced doesn't matter if it costs them everything doesn't matter if if they have to lose their homes and walk away from their family doesn't matter if they're put in prison and beaten doesn't matter because God will receive them home and they have that assurance because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. We're going to have communion at the end, but I want to finish with, again, this illustration. Uh, very recently, you, some of you may have heard of this guy called John Chow who went as a missionary to North Sentinel Island, apparently the most unreached people group in the world. And he felt God put it on his heart to go and share Jesus with them. He didn't last long. He was martyred, I think, two days, three days after he got there. He went in one time, and they shot arrows at him, managed to escape. 
with arrow wounds on him. Like one arrow went through his Bible. And then he goes back. He goes back. And the second time around, he didn't leave. They don't even know where his body is. The Indian government who owned that part have decided they're not even going to go and look for the body. But this is what he said in a letter to his parents. You guys might think I'm crazy. Radical choice. You might think I'm crazy in all this. But I think it's worth it. Get it? It's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. That's Hebrews 11 life of faith. And that's the life I believe God calls all of us to. Maybe not to go to North Sentinel Island. Maybe not to lay down your life like John Chow did. But all of us are called to make radical choices, to sacrifice, to obey God no matter what, to follow Him with this certainty, this confidence that God will ultimately rescue us no matter what. And so we keep going. We keep enduring. We keep looking to Jesus. We keep being compelled by his, the vision of His love for us, what He endured for us. And so as we have communion, if the ushers can begin to distribute those emblems, this is what we celebrate. This is what we remind ourselves, which is why I think when the Bible tells us to do this often, uh, this is the power of that, is that we're continually filling our vision with our Savior, with the one who, for the joy set before Him of being with us, of reconciling us to the Father, He endured His own cross. Jesus is never asking us to do something that He hasn't already done for us. And so as we hold in our hands this broken bread and this cup of juice that represents Jesus' broken body and, and His shed blood, I want you to, to take a moment to, to fill your heart this morning with that vision. Whatever you're going through. And I know that some of you, to follow Christ, have had to make radical choices already. And I know that there are people here whose family think they're crazy whose friends have probably rejected them. And it's not just about your decision to follow Christ when you first made it, but every decision you've made to follow Christ since then. Every hard choice. Maybe to leave a job because the environment was toxic. Maybe it's the kind of house and where you live because you didn't want to overextend your income so that you can be more generous. Whether it's choosing to send your kids to a state school rather than a private school because you wanted to engage in mission differently. Whether it's choosing to continue to walk in singleness and maintain your purity. So many just decisions, choices. You could take the easy way, but you haven't. What is it about this series? I think every preacher has cried. Because it is profound, the sacrifices that some of you have already made. But it's worth it. This is why. And this is the vision that will keep us going. Keep us following Jesus when it's hard. So take a moment.
Allow his presence and his love to just flow over you. To remind you how loved you are. What he endured for you. To bring you to himself. To assure you of the eternal hope you have. To show you the greater reward. The riches that he has in store for you. That are guaranteed because he died. Because his body was broken. And his blood was shed. And now he's risen. And he's seated at the right hand. That is our assurance. That is our confidence. Come Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church Podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.